This morning, I want to begin a new five-week sermon series titled Daring Greatly. It comes from a quote from Teddy Roosevelt. It was in 1910, after Teddy Roosevelt had left office as president, that he was traveling around Europe giving speeches in different places all over the continent. On April the 23rd of 1910, he made a stop at the University of Paris at the Sorbonne. The Sorbonne was a theological institution. At the time, it was known as one of the great theological institutions in the world. And he stopped there to give a speech that was titled Citizenship in a Republic. In this speech, he began to lay out, he said that France and the United States were the two great republics in the world. And he began to talk about what makes a republic great. He said, it's not the brilliance of the citizens that makes it great, not how smart the people are, but it's how hard they're willing to work. It's the willingness of the citizens to roll up their sleeves, to get their hands dirty, and to do something to make a difference. He said, the only way that we can improve this world, the only way that we can learn and grow, is by being active and doing something. And then when we do something and we fail and we make mistakes, we can learn from those, and then we can improve and get better. And that's what makes a republic great. That's what makes this world great. But as he was giving this speech, there was one paragraph in particular that stuck out. It stuck out to the people listening that day, and it began to be translated and spread all across Europe, and has now, for over a hundred years, inspired people across all different walks of life. I want to read you what that paragraph was. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles, or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement And who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly. As I read that quote, it made me think of Simon Peter. We read in our scripture lesson this morning about Simon Peter, but I think sometimes for you and I, as we look back on the disciples, those original 12 followers of Jesus, it can be real easy for us to put them up on a pedestal, to think that they were almost more than human in some sense, They could do things that we can't do. They were there with Jesus. And yet, whenever we read the Gospels, that's really not what we find. I mean, when you read the story of Simon Peter, you read about a guy who made mistakes time and time again. You read about a guy who, when Jesus was teaching and asking questions, he just never seemed to quite fully understand. He could never give the right answers at the right time. He was a man who tried to walk on water with Jesus and ended up stumbling and sinking. And Jesus had to rescue him and pull him back into the boat. He was a man who, when Jesus was at his most critical time of need, when he had been arrested and was at the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, Peter was there sitting around the fire, and somebody asked him, aren't you one of his followers? Weren't you with him? And three different times, Peter denied it. He said, I don't even know this man. I was never with him. Peter was a man who understood what it meant to fail, to experience disappointment. And yet, whenever you look at the life of Peter, he certainly was a man who understood what it meant to dare greatly. 
He was a man who, at the best, knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who, at the worst, if he failed, at least failed while daring greatly. As we go through the next five weeks of this sermon series, we're going to be taking time each week to look at what it means for us as people of faith to dare greatly. What would it mean for our families, for our own personal lives, for our church, for our world, if we were to dare greatly? We're going to be looking along the way at different biblical characters, people who stepped out to dare greatly in different ways, and along the way, some of them failed and some of them succeeded. We're going to look at different people throughout history, people like Teddy Roosevelt, who dared to do something different, who dared to step outside the box and try something new and change the world because of it. Over these next five weeks, we're going to be looking at what it means for us to dare greatly. This morning, I think there's three things that I want us to look at. The first, don't let your fear of failure hold you back from giving your very best. Don't let your fears keep you from giving everything you have. It can be real easy for us to be trapped by our fears, by our insecurities. When I look at the story of Simon Peter as he tries to walk on the water, as I look back on that story, I mean, what a powerful example it is. Here was a a story about the disciples who had gone out in a boat at night, and Jesus had remained behind on the shore to continue to pray. And during the middle of the night, they see Jesus begin to walk out on the water towards them. Peter calls out and he says, Lord, if that is you, command me to get out of the boat and come to you. And so Jesus does that. He tells him to get out of the boat and start walking on the water. And so Peter gets out of the boat and he begins to take those first few shaky steps. And then suddenly the waves begin to crash up around him and they begin to rise up. And he's filled filled with fear and doubt. And he begins to sink. And Jesus has to pull him up and put him back in the boat. And it's easy to look back on that story and think, Peter, what are you doing? You were there with Jesus. You were walking on the water. You were doing it. How could you doubt? You had seen firsthand that this was possible, and yet you still had fears. And Jesus had to come and rescue you. It's easy to look back at that story as a failure in Peter's life. And yet I can't help but look back at this and think, at least he was willing to get out of the boat. When you think back about the other disciples who were there that day, I wonder how many of them for the rest of their lives would look back on that night and wonder, what if? What if I had gotten out of the boat? Would I have been able to do it any better? Would I have maintained my faith and my trust in Christ? What if? Peter would never have to look back and wonder that question. For you and I, Anytime we dare greatly, anytime we dare to do something outside the box, do something different, there will always be critics. There will always be people there who are telling us how we could have done it differently, how they would have done it better, and yet we never will have to look back and wonder, what if? If we fail, at least we fail while daring greatly. Brene Brown is an author and a researcher. She's written several different books now and done different TED Talks and lectures. Her her specialty is focusing on the issue of vulnerability and human connection. 
How can we be more connected with each other? How can we open ourselves up to relationships in life? And what are the things that hold us back? She said in her research, what she has found is that most often what holds people back from being vulnerable is fear. Fear of failure, fear of rejection. She said, no, when we're we're able to be vulnerable and be open with others, it shows how courageous we really are. But whenever we take steps to prevent ourselves from having to be vulnerable, well, that shows us how disconnected and how afraid we are. You know, oftentimes in life, I think we have a tendency to, to look at our circumstances around us to determine how willing we are to take risks and to do something different. We want to wait until our life is perfectly in order, until we're in the right house, until we're in the right place in our career or in our job, until our family situation or our marriage is just perfect. We wait until everything is exactly how we want it to be before we're willing to step out and take a risk. And yet, what we find is that we miss opportunities along the way when we wait. We miss so much of life and we let it pass us by. Brene Brown was talking about this very issue in her book, and and I was really struck by what she said. I want to read this to you. When we spend our lives waiting until we're perfect or bulletproof before we walk into the arena, we ultimately sacrifice relationships and opportunities that may not be recoverable. We squander our precious time, and we turn our backs on our gifts, those unique contributions that only we can make. Perfect and bulletproof are seductive, but they don't exist in the human experience. We must walk into the arena, whatever it may be, a new relationship, an important meeting, our creative process, or a difficult family conversation with courage and the willingness to engage. Rather than sitting on the sidelines and hurling judgment and advice, we must dare to show up and let ourselves be seen. This is vulnerability. This is daring greatly. Perfect and bulletproof are seductive, but they don't exist in the human experience. Sometimes we can be so tempted to wait until everything is perfect in life before we're willing to step out of the boat, before we're willing to take that first step into something scary and new. And yet when we do that, we are the ones who lose out. We miss opportunities for meaningful relationships. We miss opportunities to bless life. We miss opportunities to make a difference in our world. Daring greatly isn't about waiting for everything to be perfect and bulletproof. It's about willing to step out, being willing to step out on the, to the choppy waters when the waves are crashing around us and daring greatly. And so second, having clarity of values helps us in the arena of life even when times get tough. Life will be difficult at times. We will experience the ups and the downs. But when we are clear about our values, our purpose, it helps us to be successful in the arena, even in those difficult times. I think about the life of the early disciples, of Simon Peter and the others. Life was hard. I mean, you look back at their lives, and for three years, they followed Jesus every single day. They were with him to witness the miracles and the healings and the feeding of the crowds. They were there as he taught and he preached and the crowds gathered around. They saw him as he made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday and they knew 
that something different was happening. They had dreams about what a restored Israel could look like. They had aspirations of of raising up and overthrowing the Romans, starting a new empire there. And then suddenly it all came crashing down. Their world was turned upside down and Jesus had been crucified. He was gone. In just a moment, everything they thought they were going towards was gone. Life was difficult. But even after the resurrection, even after they came to hear the good news on that very first Easter Sunday, it did not mean that life was going to be easy. They had the hope of resurrection, but life was still difficult. They found themselves persecuted by the Jews and by the Romans. They're trying to spread the good news, and yet all the while they find themselves as outcasts wherever they go. Life was difficult for the early disciples. But I think about Simon Peter. And as you read the stories of the early church, what you see is he never lost sight of his values, of the mission that God had given to him. You think back about the story where Jesus is having breakfast with Peter on the beach after the resurrection there at the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus asked Peter three different times, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, of course, Lord, you know that I love you. And three different times, Jesus begins to offer him peace and forgiveness and freedom. And he gives him this command and says, then Peter, go and feed my sheep. Take care of my people. As you read in Matthew's gospel, you see that Jesus comes to all of the disciples and he gives them their purpose, their values, what we now know as the Great Commission. He says, go into all the world, making uh, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And lo, I will be with you always to the end of the age. They remembered these values. You read on into the book of Acts and it tells the story of the early church And it's there that Peter is praying one day, and he sees this vision. And this sheet comes down from heaven, and it's full of these animals that would have been deemed unclean by the Jewish laws. And he hears this voice from God, and it says, What I have called clean, don't call unclean. This happens several different times, and then suddenly Peter hears a knock at the door. And these men come, and they say, Cornelius has called for you. He wants you to come to his house. Cornelius was a Gentile. And it would not have been proper, it would not have been right for a good Jewish man like Peter to go into the house of a Gentile. That would have made him unclean. And yet I think Peter was remembering those values of Jesus telling him to care for my people, to feed my sheep. He was remembering the Great Commission. He was remembering this message that he had just received from God. And in that moment, because he was clear about his values, he went to the house of Cornelius And that day, Cornelius' entire household was baptized, and for the very first time, a Gentile was converted to the Christian faith. There are times in life where we will experience difficulty, but when we are clear about our values, it helps us to succeed in the arena. This week, our news has been filled with images and videos of all of the destruction the chaos that has happened down in Houston and in Texas and Louisiana, everything that's gone on from Hurricane Harvey. I know that many of us have personal friends or family members who have been affected down in that area. We've been praying for them and thinking about them. You know, as I've seen all of the destruction and the chaos that has gone on, it's also been so refreshing to see all of the stories coming out of ways that people are coming together to lend a helping hand. 
what we have seen is that regardless of race or color or religion or creed or background, people have seen the, the needs that are there and they're reaching out to offer a helping hand because that is our values. That is who we are as human beings. We help one another in times of need. I've been seeing the stories come out, and I saw one story from CNN. There was a news crew who was going through one of the neighborhoods. They were filming live, and as they were leaving the neighborhood, they heard a woman crying out from the house. They turned around, and they went back to find this family that had been trapped in their house. They were able to rescue them and pull them out and take them to safety. You heard the story of the Cajun Navy, this group of people from around the New Orleans area. You remember back in 2005 after Hurricane Katrina, The Cajun Navy was this grassroots movement of people who had boats, and they just came to the rescue and began helping pull people out of houses wherever they could. They did the same thing in Baton Rouge after the flooding there last year, and this time they loaded up their boats, and they drove from Louisiana to Texas to be able to help pull people out in whatever way they could. From right here in Oklahoma, we saw how OG&E sent 40 trucks and more than 80 crews down to that area to help restore power to help out in whatever way they could. I heard the story of Mattress Mac, this furniture salesman, a guy who saw the need of all these people who had been displaced from their homes. He said, rather than going and staying in some shelter where you're sleeping on a cot, I have this giant store here full of beds and mattresses and sofas. Come here and make yourselves at home. And whether you've been displaced from your home or you're a National Guard soldier who is helping out, rather than sleeping on rollaway beds and cots, they were sleeping on $12,000 Tempur-Pedic mattresses. I mean, people were coming together to help out in whatever way they could. Because what we find is in those moments of need, we don't even have to think about our response. We just do it. It's innate within us. It is our values. It is who we are as human beings that we help one another in times of need. We certainly know that here in Oklahoma. We saw it back in 1995 after the Murrah Building bombing. We see it year after year when tornadoes rip through our state. We come together in our communities to help out in whatever way we can, to rebuild and to restore. It's innate within us. We are clear about our values, and it tells us what to do when times get difficult. Life will throw challenges at us, but when we take the time to be clear about our purpose, our mission now, it helps us in those difficult moments. This week, there are 33 members of our family of faith who are traveling around Germany and England, and they're going to be there for two weeks, seeing all different kinds of sites there. They're there because this year is the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. You may remember the story. of It was October the 31st of 1517. Martin Luther tacked his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg. Whenever he did that, he wasn't trying to break off from the church. He wasn't trying to create a new movement. He was just simply saying, I think there's some things in the church that are going on that we need to talk about. We need to bring to light some of these issues and be able to have a conversation about what God wants from us. Specifically, he was addressing the issue of indulgences. Now, indulgences was the practice in the church at the time of being able to offer forgiveness to those who had sinned if they paid a certain fee to the church. And Luther looked at this and he said, hang on a second, I think we need to talk here. First of all, there's no biblical uh, basis for this. We don't see anywhere that you can pay a fee to be forgiven of your sins. No, forgiveness comes from God's grace. 
Our salvation comes by faith alone, not by how much money we give or by how much work we do. It's because of God's grace. But secondly, he said this is an issue of justice. What we're doing is we're taking money from the poor and we're making it uh, the, the church wealthy off the backs of the poor. He said, that's not right. It's not what we're called to do. And so he posted these 95 theses to the church door just simply as a way to start a conversation. And yet when he did that, it ignited this spark. It lit a flame and it began to spread like wildfire. It did something to the hearts of the people and it spoke to their needs and what was going on. Within two weeks, copies of his 95 Theses had been distributed all over Germany. He had originally written it in Latin, but by early 1518, just a couple of months later, his friends had translated it into German, the vernacular, the language of the common people. They translated it to that so that they could continue to distribute it and everybody could read it. They would continue growing the conversation. By early 1519, his writings and his books had spread all over Europe. And people were hungry for this message of salvation by faith, the message of God's grace. People were craving it, and they were flocking to Wittenberg, there to Germany, to hear Martin Luther speak and to teach, to see what he had to say. And yet, even as so many were excited about this, there were others who were not so thrilled with the message that he was giving. There were those in the, earth, in the, in the church at the time who saw it as a threat to the establishment. They saw it as a threat to what they believed God wanted them to do. Pope Leo X was Pope at the time in power, and for the next three years, he would come after Martin Luther with a vengeance. I mean, he sent his theologians, his church officials, to come and publicly attack Martin Luther and his theology wherever they could across Europe. I mean, they were railing on Martin Luther. For three years, he went through trial after trial, having to stand up and defend himself. It was finally in 1520 that the, uh, the Pope issued what's known as a papal bull. It's an edict. And it came to Martin Luther, and it was basically a cease and desist order. It was telling him to stop what he was doing, stop his writings, and that he needed to recant of all the things that he had said and done against the teachings of the church. When Martin Luther received this edict, he went out to the town square and he burned it in front of everybody. And then he sent a copy of a paper that he had written to the Pope. It was called on the freedom of a Christian. I would have liked to have been there when the Pope received that in the mail. I'm sure he was not too happy about it. Finally, in 1521, there was a secular general assembly that was called by the emperor. It was called the Diet of Worms. Emperor Charles V was the one who called it together. And it was in April 23rd of that year that Martin Luther stood on trial there at the Diet of Worms. The emperor had assigned Johann Eck as the man who would try Martin Luther. And then when they got there that day, Johann Eck took all of Martin Luther's papers and books, and he spread them out on this table. And he said to him, Are these your writings? And do you stand by their contents? Martin Luther said the answer to the first question is yes. But I need some time to think about the second question. So he went away that night and he began to pray and to talk to some of his friends and mentors. And he came back the next day to give his response, and I want to read you what he had to say. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Scriptures, or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the Scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything. 
since it is neither safe nor right to go against my conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. May God help me. Amen. I cannot and will not recant anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against my conscience. Times were difficult for Martin Luther. He was being persecuted. He was having all kinds of things set against him. He was being put on trial. And yet through it all, he was clear about his values. He was clear about the purpose that God had called him to. And he was able to stand firm in his faith and what he believed, even through it all. When we dare greatly, there will be critics. Difficult times will come in life. And yet through it all, when we are clear about who we are and our purpose as children of God, we can make it through. And so third, and most importantly, it is our faith in Christ that allows us to dare greatly. When you look at the story from our scripture lesson this morning, we see Jesus come to the disciples there in Caesarea Philippi. And he asked them, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, it's important to understand the reference that he's making here. The Son of Man was a term that comes out of the Old Testament in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7. Now, we may remember from our Sunday school lessons the story of Daniel and the lion's den. That comes from the first half of the book of Daniel. But oftentimes, we don't read the second half of the book of Daniel because, well, it's not quite as fun of a story as the first half. It's an apocalyptic vision. It reads more like the book of Revelation than it does anything else that we read in the Bible. It's this vision of what's going to happen in the end times. It's this messianic prophecy. And there in chapter 7, Daniel says that he sees the Son of Man coming down on the clouds. And the Son of Man will be given glory and kingship for all of eternity. And so Jesus comes to ask the disciples, who do people say that this figure is, this mysterious figure, the Son of Man? And the disciples said, well, some say it's John the Baptist. Others say it's Elijah or maybe it's Jeremiah. And Jesus gets more pointed with this question. He says, but who do you say that I am? And it's Peter who speaks up. He says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And it's only after Peter makes that statement of faith. Now remember, we have defined faith not as ascribing to a certain set of doctrines or beliefs. Faith is about trusting in God's love and goodwill towards us, his children. It's only after Peter makes that statement of faith or that statement of trust in Christ as his Savior that Jesus turns to him and says, you are Peter. The Greek is Petros. It means rock. You are the rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church. And I will give you the keys to the kingdom. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Whenever Peter made that statement of trust, that statement of faith, that Jesus says, you will be the one to lead my church. You will be the one to dare greatly to go and do amazing things. I've been reading a book lately written by Ernie Johnson called Unscripted. Ernie Johnson is a sportscaster. He works for TNT. You might have seen him on the show Inside the NBA. If you watch Thunder Games, a lot of times when they're on TNT, this show will come on afterwards. It's Ernie Johnson and Shaquille O'Neal, Shaq, Charles Barkley, and Kenny Smith. 
And you can tell when you watch the show that these guys have a lot of fun together. They really share a great friendship with one another. They love to cut up and have some fun and joke around. But if you watch the show much, you, you may have picked up that Ernie Johnson is a very strong man of faith. But what I didn't know about him, as I've been reading his book, is his own personal battle with cancer. It was in 2003 that Ernie Johnson received a call from his doctor, and they told him that he had been diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. It was a blood cancer. They said it was very treatable and had very good chances of being able to make it through this. And you can imagine that that kind of phone call is one that rocks your world. He said it was a day he would never forget. One of the very first phone calls that he made was to his pastor, a man named Kevin. The next day, they got together at Starbucks, and they began to talk. And Kevin told him, he said, Ernie, at this point, it's all going to be about trust. But is it going to be trust with a question mark? Is it going to be, God, I will trust you if I get back the test results that I want? Or is it going to be, trust God, period? We will go through difficult times in life. Life will not always be perfect. We will not always get the test results back that we want. Things will not always go the way that we had planned. But when we find ourselves in the midst of the arena and our face is marred with dust and sweat and blood, will it be trust God with a question mark? Or will it be trust God, period? There will always be those who are on the sidelines cheering and jeering. But we are called to be in the game. And it is our faith our trust in Christ, and Christ alone for our salvation, that we find the strength that we need to dare greatly. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles, or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayers. Amen. Oh,